Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. So, do you want marketing made simple? Shopify removes the guesswork with built-in tools that help you create, execute, and analyze all your online marketing campaigns. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com income now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com income. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. And so then when did your mom do the Fantastics? So she did it... In its, like, original run that lasted forever and a day. Yeah, at Sullivan Street. And my mom was the 25th anniversary Louisa. Oh, wow. And it How was cool. filmed for Lincoln Center. No way. And, I didn't know yeah. that. So I've gotten to, like, see my mom do it, which is How cute really is cool. That? And uh, so she was the 25th anniversary. And then the show closed in 99. And then the quote-unquote revival mm-hmm. opened up in 2006 at what was the Snapple or the Jerry Orbach Theater on 50th. The Snapple. The Snapple. I was there when the Snapple got ripped off the side of the wall. Like, Snapple, like, took their funding from the theater. And, like, the whole Snapple came off the side of the building. Like, it was very dramatic. Oh, drama. <laughs> I know. Drama in corporate America. Yeah, so I came in and I was the 56th anniversary, Louisa. How cute. So about 30 years apart. Welcome, everybody, to a musical theater podcast where we discuss the cultural and emotional impact of some of our favorite musicals in theater history. My name is Jeffrey Scott Parsons. You can call me Jeff. Today, we are talking about the Fantastics with someone who is a beautiful ingenue who can sing anything. She's also funny and a strong mover. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Madison Claire Parks. Why, thank you. The strong mover is very kind of you. <laughs> That's pushing it a little bit, but thank oh, come you. come on. <laughs> Didn't we dance together in a dance call? Oh, are you ready for this? I, was it Holiday Inn? I for- think so. <laughs> yes, we did. I can't tap. I've never tapped in my entire life. And suddenly it was final callbacks, and they're like, five, six, seven, eight. And I was like, oh my God, I don't tap. <laughs> And no one bothered to pay attention to that. And I think I've never faked my way through a dance call like that. I was like, Maddie, just stop when everybody stops and get the arms right. 
Absolutely. Sell it face. Sell it mm-hmm. up here. I was like, I'm going to smile and I'm going to, you know, give them the hands. Exactly. Just don't look below the waist. A full tap call. I was like, this is I... my nightmare. <laughs> brava. Truly, truly. I think brava. That's the last time I saw you. I know. And I didn't get to see everything. you in that, too, which oh. I heard you were, you know, beautiful and flawless <laughs> oh, and you're, tapped you're your face kind. off. Thank you. <laughs> I, I kept telling people about Holiday and It's all the singing, all the dancing, none of the racism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And anyway. we, we need more, more of that right now. More of that, please. Oh, yeah. Now, I'm so grateful that you are on this episode. Not only do you have this amazing connection to the Fantastics, but you're also just kind of a fascinating human in general because you come from, like, this crazy showbiz family. Yeah, everyone. I mean, <laughs> truly everyone in my family is in the business in some way, shape, or form. Okay, so let's start with Grandma. Yeah. Grandma, musical theater, film, TV, Broadway actress, Betty Garrett. Icon yeah. Betty Garrett, Isn't that cool? people. I still think On it's the town, cool. my sister Eileen. I was researching her, uh, knowing that we were going to be talking, and yeah. I didn't... Like, she came up at that perfect time where all of her teachers were, like, the teachers. Meisner, Martha Graham, like, just everybody. I mean, like, name after name. It's kind of insane. She was right at that peak when that was all starting in New York. She had lived a fascinating, long, cool life. I'm recording in the house that I grew up with her at, because this was her old house, and uh, I'm very lucky I got to live with her. For most That's of my amazing. childhood and be here and play dress up and her old costumes and things like that here. Oh, um, my gosh. That's so cool. So it's very full circle, too. So, yeah, it's, that's grandma. And then Gramps. Yes, grandpa, who I never got to meet. Oh, um, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, he passed away before I was born. Uh, but my grandfather is Larry Parks, who... Um, Oscar nominee. Yeah, Oscar nominee for a problematic movie. You know, it's, I was gonna say, have you? I haven't seen the Al Jolson story I, in which he played Al Jolson. Yeah, so it's a biopic about Al Jolson and Jolson's life. Very, you know, interesting and a legend vocally, you know, in that. But mm-hmm. grew up in vaudeville in blackface, which is absolutely horrifying and doesn't need to be. You know, I've had people reach out, which is a very weird thing, going like, why won't they play the Jolson story? I'm like, why do you think? We don't need to perpetuate that. Are you kidding me? Like, yeah. no, that's okay. I Trust yeah. me, I'm f- directly related. I'm not worried about it as yeah, far as yeah, like, yeah. oh, it's not getting airtime. It, it got plenty of airtime and did its damage then. I, you know, am very happy with the work that my grandfather did as an actor, you mm-hmm. know, and that is all that it needs to be, I think. Preach, Maddie Parks. You know, I just think... It's, it had its time and place and probably shouldn't have even had its time and place. But he was wonderful. My grandfather yes. himself, my dad and my uncle look so much like him. They Good are, looking fella. Yeah, right. They, very striking. Yeah. They, you know, the lo- really like thick black hair, which I don't know yes. where that went in the family. But um, and uh, yeah, well, it's a little fake. Just a little bit. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm an ingenue on paper, guys. Not not, <laughs> <laughs> not from the roots. Um, but so, yeah, that was my grandfather. He was a, also a big prankster, too, and loved what he did, loved acting. And that sort of from my grandma and grandfather really loving it, that sort of got ingrained in all of my family. And now what I do and what I am lucky to do, I think, partially because of them. So that's, that's beautiful. Yeah. 
Um, let's go to mom now. Yes, mom. People often think that my mom is my grandma's daughter, but oh, it's so right, my right. grandma, uh, Betty and grandpa Larry are my dad's parents. And my dad is musician and composer Garrett Parks. And they met when my mom was doing Mean Mean St. Louis on Broadway with my grandma, Betty Garrett. My dad saw her and uh, 30 years later, here we are. That's crazy. I didn't yeah. know that. So your grandma and your mom worked together before she met her, your dad. Yeah, they've been together How ever beautiful. since. And, and here I am. And uh, yeah. <laughs> and here I am to show for it. Yes. <laughs> Now, your mom also was a Christine uh, in Phantom for a very long time. And I've seen those adorable pictures of you in, like, the Christine costume. Oh, yeah. I... How old are you in those things? We might need to post those well, if, you, if it's okay. Yeah, totally. I've got too many of them. Um, <laughs> I So my mom did played Christine in The Phantom of the Opera on Broadway. I think she was the seventh christine on broadway sixth or seventh i don't ever mm-hmm. get that number right um so she'll <laughs> Sorry, be Mom. like that was incorrect um <laughs> so she did that for eight years off and on wow and i was born between her doing la and san francisco so i was wow. about five months old when she went to go do it in san francisco and i was there until i was about three Oh my gosh. Yes. So growing up in the dressing room. Yeah, I loved it. They made me my own, once I could walk, they made me my own Christine costume to match the sort of red with the beads. And, uh, yes, like the Corrine Yeah, the Hannibal, costume. Yes, the Hannibal yes. scene. And so they made me one of those to match. And I would not take it off until it could not fit anymore. It was your Elsa dress. I have yes. a niece who like would not take off the Elsa dress until it was sh- in shreds. Oh like, yeah, just or like, you can like barely girl. fit an arm through it. Right. You know, <laughs> I like tried to put it on a thigh, and I was like, "This yeah. is what it's going to be." So, was there ever a point where you were like, "I'm going to be a lawyer," or was that like not a possibility? You know, I never really thought about it. I went through different. I wanted to be like a vet at one point, or naturally. I wanted to be a yoga teacher for a long time okay. as a nine-year-old me was like, I really am into, like, I wanted to be a yoga teacher. That was a weird phase I went through. Uh, I love that so Although much. yoga is great. I need to do it more. I do it and it's extremely helpful for everything. <laughs> but I really never, yeah, there was never a plan B. There was never a question of like, oh, this is what I like to do. I would put on shows in the living room. They had no plot, you know, big song and dance numbers. (laughs) It just went on for too long. And uh, 1920s musical theater, we'll say. Yeah. Yes, (laughs) truly. But my parents never put me in like musical theater camp or even though I expressed want to. And my mom was like, you know, when you can drive, you know, she wanted to make sure that I really wanted to do it, I think. Mm. Um, But it was just an ever present thing versus like because of your family, this is what you have to do. There was never yeah. any of that, which I think it's is not very... not like family business. You got to take it over. Yeah. It wasn't like the accounting firm or something, that <laughs> the musical right. theater accounting firm. Um, yeah. And... Uh, we need more of those, by the way. <laughs> yeah, honestly. <laughs> yeah. So that was just sort of my childhood was just filled with it in many different forms. And I just fell in love with it. And I couldn't think of my life without it. So then when did the Fantastics happen? When I was 19. So about when I could drive at like 16 here in L.A., I started driving myself to auditions and wanted to do that. And Musical Theater West gave me my first 
like real gig. In Oklahoma, right? Yeah, doing Lori in Oklahoma there. And I remember leaving high school to go do it and then coming back like, you know, two months later or something and sitting in a history class being like, oh, I'm going to curse. This is bullshit. I was like, I don't want to do that. Like, I just learned more in those, you know, few months doing a show than I have sitting here in a classroom. Wow. And uh, I was doing a concert in New York and my agents there were like, they're not looking for anybody, but like we've talked them into like letting you sing for them after a rehearsal. And I was like, wow. okay, cool. very weird. And so I went in, I did the girls monologue and the song after one of their rehearsals right on 50th street there. And they were like, okay, great. Thank you. You know, we're not looking. And I was like, no, that's okay. Thank you. Nice to meet you guys. And that was it. And a year later they needed an immediate replacement and I got a call and my agent was like, can you move to New York next week? And I was like, yeah. Wow. And so I moved to New York and I had three days of rehearsal <gasps> to learn the show. That's a huge show to learn. Oh I mean, because oh. there are so few characters in it. Yeah. I mean, good heavens. And Louisa is rarely off stage and is a brunt of the material and songs. And luckily I was familiar with the show. But it, it was terrifying. Musically, the way that it's written, if you ever hear a female voice, it's her. Cause <laughs> oh, because she, she's the only female. Because she's the only one. Yeah, it was totally panic-inducing to, like, at 19, to leave home for the first time, to move to New York fully on my own, learn a show in three days and do it. Like, it was an incredible experience, but also absolutely terrifying. Now, I have seen The Fantastics once and it was not in New York. It was a regional production, and I did not care for it. <laughs> and <laughs> that is fine. A lot of people don't. Here's the thing, though. I have completely come around <laughs> in the past two weeks, reading the script, listening to the music, and I'm not kidding. Because the music is so beautiful and timeless and sweet. That's the mm -hmm. thing about the show. It can be very simple and sweet, mm -hmm. which is part of its charm and part of the reason I think it's lasted so long because of its yeah. simplicity and slight weirdness too. Yeah, it's quirky as Yeah. I mean, if you've seen, you know, the crazy round and round scene in Fantastics, that's quirky. It's weird. Yeah, it it is. It's weird. Here were the two problems that I had with it when I first saw it. Yeah. Number one, big theater. Yeah. Kills this show. It can kill in my it opinion. so fast. Absolutely. Yeah. Problem number two, I very casually tossed it aside as, oh, those weirdos from the 60s who think mm -hmm. that everything that is young is good and everything is old is bad. Yes, that is so and interesting. for some reason, that was like the vibe I was getting. Then I sit down to research it. It opened in 59. Like, we're not even yeah. near hair. No. We're a decade away, and these guys are on the forefront of culture clash. Mm-hmm. I had no idea what pioneers were behind this show. Yeah. So let's talk about them. Yeah. Music by Harvey Schmidt, lyric and books by Tom Jones, not Delilah Pussycat. Yeah. Tom Jones. <laughs> yeah, different. Just to be clear, different Tom Jones. So Schmidt and Jones, their songwriting team, they're both Texans. Mm -hmm. Did you meet either of them? Because yes. uh, Harvey's not with us anymore, right? No, he's not. He passed away. A few years ago, I want to yeah. say. Um, so I, he, I never met Harvey um, because he was in Texas, I think, dealing with health issues in his later life. Gotcha. He sent a few lovely letters to the theater while I was there, oh, um, which was really nice. Um, but Tom was there quite a bit because he kind of took over as 
director, quote unquote, um, <laughs> when I was there. So we had a few visits from Tom. Sometimes he'd come just to watch the show and give notes. Uh-huh. He seems to have very strong opinions about how the show should be played. So I can imagine how he, if he was present, he would consider himself the director and like more power to you because it's such a specific show. Yeah. That it's like, okay, let's hear it from the horse's mouth. Like, bring it on. Yeah. You know? And also um, somebody who was the original director, he had passed away at that point. Oh, And so sure. um, it sort of fell on Tom, too. Word Baker. That's who Yes. It was. Thank you. Now, as a songwriting team, they are, I believe, underappreciated. Yeah. I'm going to say it. Yeah. Like, people don't know who Schmidt and Jones are as much as they do Rodgers and Hammerstein, mm-hmm. you know, Kander, Neb, Sondheim, etc. Yeah. And yet, in many ways, I feel like they are a precursor to many of the people who became more famous. Absolutely. You hear songs in the Fantastics and it sounds like Sondheim. And then you realize it was written in 1959 before Sondheim had really even gotten on the scene. Yeah. Or at least as a composer, right? Mm -hmm. An incredible team that, in addition to the Fantastics, wrote 110 in the Shade. Which is a beautiful score. Oh, my goodness. I love that show so much. It's based on the play The Rainmaker. Highly recommend. Great Yelp review for 110 in the Shade. (laughs) They also wrote I Do, I Do, which is a sweet little two-person show. I mean, one of the few two-person musicals to ever make it on Broadway because it was Mary Martin and Robert Preston who were big stars at the time. But it's just about a marriage that you see over the years. So, so sweet. In many ways, as an adult, I look at the range of musical theater characters and I feel very represented and seen by Schmidt and Jones. I think because they're Texans. They are able to capture like the common man in a Small way that town I f- sort of yeah yeah in a way that I don't feel like people born and raised in New York in the theater scene can really grasp and that is not a criticism it's just simply no. a matter of where you're born yeah that's something I've like, never thought of here you know in LA city gal I really never thought of it that way and I think that's beautiful and a testament to their great skills too yeah what they've absolutely written. there's a simplicity but then also that added theatricality that comes from them trying weird things, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> truly. So they start out writing the Fantastics as like a big Rodgers and Hammerstein musical that takes place in Texas. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be like this Western. And it is crap. Like they, yeah. <laughs> they, they, they throw it away and say <laughs> bye bye. And they keep rewriting it, and it's it's just not working until they totally abandon the idea that it needs to be an R&H show. Mm-hmm. And as soon as they do that, as soon as they like bring it to bare bones, that's when things really start clicking. And around this time, in like the mid-50s, there was an adaptation of The Three Penny Opera, which is this mm-hmm. really, really old show. It's like the great-great-grandmother of musical theater. <laughs> And Mark Blitzstein did the adaptation, and it ran forever off-Broadway. And it was like one of the first times that people realized, oh, you can have a hit musical, and it doesn't need to be on Broadway. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Which I think is something we're still struggling with. Oh, yeah, because it feels like right? that stamp of approval. Exactly. It's Speaks a cloud. It's like yeah. a we've made it sort of thing. Yeah. But because of Three Penny Opera... All of a sudden, there was this huge rush of musicals off-Broadway. Yeah. So you had Little Mary Sunshine, which is like super spoofy melodrama. So cute. have you ever done that show? I feel like you'd be fantastic no, in that No, I've show. done a few uh, songs from it. I don't know it that well, but I really enjoy the little that I know about it. So stupid and funny. Also, 
Ernest in Love, which is like a musicalization of the importance of being earnest. Yes. And then the Fantastics, like all of these shows debuted off-Broadway around the same time. The Fantastics opens, it gets okay reviews, and from what I understand, they almost shut it down. Yes. And then a producer decides to actually close the production and move it upstate or maybe even to like Connecticut or something so that rich people can see it up there. Because there was this stigma, right, that rich people don't go to off-Broadway. Yes. So all of the rich people come to see it, and then word starts spreading that it's actually pretty good. So then they move it back to off-Broadway, and now all of the rich people's friends are starting to show up. And then it just kind of starts snowballing until it turns into this phenomenon that they try to close several times over the next 43 years, and the fan base is like, absolutely not. Keep the Fantastics open. Yes, because it became like a New York staple, too. I mean, same when it was had moved up to 50th Street. and Like it's part of the theater landscape. Yeah. You just always have the Fantastics open. And that's also partially why I got the job, because they announced it was closing. And then, oh, wow. so the girl and the boy that were doing it got summer stock gigs. Sure. And they were like, okay, well, the show's closing in a few months. And then they're like, surprise, it's not closing. And they had already gotten other jobs. And they were like, well, I, I can't, you know, I don't want to turn down this summer gig. Of course. And so that's how I came in initially. It's like we need an immediate replacement because it was going to close and then didn't. So it happened many times. That's so cool. And like they did it without Twitter. Yeah. They did it without people, like, really, you know, on the social media. Anyway, I I love that. I love that people kept it alive. Like, how big was the theater? How big was the Sullivan? Do you know how many, like, seats it was? I don't. I don't know. How big was the one you were in? Not big at all. And they sort of modeled it when it moved there after Sullivan Street Mm -hmm. with fake tiles. Because at Sullivan Street, the floor was really, like, kitchen tiled floors. Stop it. Yeah, apparently it was extremely slippery, is what my mom said. I'm like, I would have broken something on that. I tripped too many times in the show itself just because I'm a klutz. Um, But they made like this sort of fake tile floor at the Jerry Orbach Theater to mimic what was at the Sullivan, you know, but of course it was matte and sort of nice (laughs) to stand on. A couple of figures about the original. The set cost $900, period. I didn't know that. <laughs> That's crazy. Costumes were $541. They apparently checked the receipts on this. <laughs> yeah. And the designer was the set designer, costumer, prop master, and lighting designer, and did it <laughs> all for about $500. Oh. Crazy. So, like, in general, it was an incredibly small budget that then ran 42 years. And if you don't think that they, like, recouped their investment. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. You're crazy. Also, so Sullivan Street Playhouse has 135 seats. Okay. And uh, the Jerry Orbach has 199. Oh, so under 200. Yeah. Yeah. That is perfect for the Fantastics. You're right. I mean, it kills the show if it's bigger because you miss that intimacy, which is so necessary for the show to work. We were also truly maybe five feet from the audience. We were really up close and personal with them at the Jerry Orbach. Wow. We're right on top. One, <laughs> one show I have when I come out and start the girls monologue, we were told to talk to the audience. That was the whole, yeah. whole thing about the show, too. So I start the monologue to this guy that's sitting five feet in front of me. And uh, he goes, 
oh, Jesus. <laughs> and I was like, oh, no, sir, we've got two more hours of being this far apart from each other. So you are in for a ride. <laughs> I it, it was the funniest thing in the world. That makes me so happy. He He's so uncomfortable. Oh, he just needs to, like, show you. He was like, please do not talk to me. I don't like this. <laughs> I'm not having this right now. <laughs> Theater is confrontational. Yeah, but that's how intimate it was. Like I that, love some that. people also felt like they could talk back. We've yeah, had we right. had that happen because it was so conversational and so up close and personal. Look, in terms of audience participation, don't pick me. Oh no, I hate it. Like I am one hundred percent that guy. I'm like, no, no, mm-hmm. no, 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 no. I just want to be in the audience. And but at the same time, I'm sitting here in quarantine, thinking like, oh my gosh, I miss that intimacy of the possibility of someone getting mad at me (laughs) and being that uh another this is so horrible of me because i'm the same way i would have been that guy that said oh jesus i'm like please do not talk to me you're on stage right right. this needs to be a divide i need to enjoy you please don't talk to me i went to go see the cats revival and i'd never seen cats and i (laughs) was sitting on the aisle seat really excited like excited because i was like I've shit on cats a lot in my head and I want to really, you know, be excited and supportive about it because I didn't know the show well. And the lights dim and I always get emotional when an overture happens. Which is the fun overture. It's really exciting. And this poor whoever it was, I don't know, came like slinking up next to me and I went, no. And I yelled no. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm that person. I'm the person I hate as an actor. Those green eyes slinked up on you. Right up on my chair. shut it down. I was like, no. I was like, get on stage. Stop it. (laughs) No. So stupid. I loved being a kitty for that very reason. I would absolutely rub on people's legs like I was an actual. Oh, my gosh. I loved freaking them out. It was so fun. Because it does. You're just drunk with power. Yeah. My goodness, is it already time to go through the show? I guess so. Yeah. Oh, okay. So here's, I guess here's one more thing that I wanted to say. Yeah. I have this quote from Tom Jones who says, we wanted to celebrate romanticism and mock it at the same time. <laughs> I'd never heard that quote. I love that. You know, speaking of pioneers, one of the rules of the podcast is that you can never talk too much about Howard Ashman. And in the script for Little Shop of Horrors, he has like a whole page of his instructions about how to play the show. I haven't really seen many scripts that have that from the author, at least musicals. Yeah. But The Fantastics is another one of those. I haven't looked at a script in so many years. I have. That's yes, of course it does. I wrote down a couple. Yeah. Point. That's how all of them are are distinguished. It's point colon. Yes. So like this is a point. Point. Costumes should be theatrical, should have a flair, should even suggest commedia, like commedia dell'arte in a way. But they should be basically contemporary. No tights, please. But BVDs are okay. (laughs) That? That's in the script. That's gospel. That that is amazing. That was not in my script. I wish. (laughs) That's incredible. I mean, yeah, they had a very specific vision and... Like we said, why so much of it worked because it followed this mold that they knew had a, the outcome that they needed it to have. Point. Given this somewhat stylized premise of presentation, it is not necessary for the actors to add any theatrical icing of their own, Maddie. That's that real. is to say, 
<laughs> that is to say, asides are not spoken in the melodramatic, theatrical way, but simply and directly. And the parts should not be spoofed, even when the romanticism becomes extreme. The people should be people, not cardboard rococo. <laughs> like, even the way that, that he wrote that is so the Fantastics, because it's like straight to the point mm-hmm. and yet also a little silly. Yeah. And that's what I love about the characters is they are larger in life <laughs> in so many ways. But if they're not real people, the show loses their magic, which is why I think he felt the need to put that at the front, is they need to be real people, even as ridiculous as some of these things are, you know, coming out of their mouth are. Because mm-hmm. you want to fight for these characters, especially for the boy and girl. The silliness is almost in its honesty. Like oh, the yeah. characters are so honest with the thoughts running through their head. They just let them spill out, which yeah. means that they have to be honest or else then they're not silly. A perfect example I found of that during the show is during the girl's monologue, it ends with, um, you know, I am special, I am special, please, God, please don't let me be normal. (laughs) And to me, that was like the most, I know, I'm like, I feel that very deeply and viscerally. (laughs) Um, That to me was the most sacred part of the show for me because in those lines, that's who Louisa is. And that is her want. That is her, you know, why she drives this story, why she's in this story. And I found, I mean, so many people do the girls monologue too, and much more. It's so overdone now, particularly for young um, performers. There are so few things that allow young performers to be taken seriously like this material. Yeah. And that's why it's great and used often. And if you didn't take that moment seriously, I think I was watching a a masterclass of somebody coaching somebody else on this. Oh, and they were like, they really wanted it to be like, honk, honk, funny. Wow. And then I was like, that loses her magic. And from personal experience in the show, if I didn't take that so seriously, that's what got a laugh every single night because of how earnest it has to be. And that's when the audience goes, oh my God, how ridiculous that she believes this and wants this to her core. And that was really funny to people. And And we also identify with it because, like, that's what being an adolescent is all about, is taking things so seriously that probably you don't 20 years later. Exactly. Everything is so big and, you know, and important at that age. People left every night. And I didn't get it at first. I was like, this is a very serious moment for me. How dare you laugh at me? Don't laugh at me. (laughs) Um, No, but I loved and, you know, because after two years of doing it, I would try it different ways. And any time that I took it any sort of sarcastic or not earnest way fell flat. Nobody enjoyed it. And then you have to work to get everyone back on your side. (laughs) Wow. Interesting. Yeah. It's that that's what's funny is how serious and important these things are to these people. The show is based on, um, I'm going to say in English, The Romancers. Yes. Which was written by a French poet by the name of Edmund Rostand. And he wrote everything in verse because he was a poet and so the fantastics is in verse it feels almost shakespearean sometimes in that poetry is an elegance and a refinement that it plays really well against the simplicity and kind of bare bones structure that they were going for off broadway yeah the show opens with an overture and we meet kind of our players our mm-hmm. our gr- our troop of players And we've got a mute Mm -hmm. whose job is basically to facilitate props and settings and what else? 
Uh, yeah, everyone's right-hand man that helps to sort of have his or her hand in everything. We have our two ingenues. We have Louisa, the girl, and Matt, the boy. We have their fathers. Mm-hmm. Uh, I forget sometimes which one is which. Huckleby is... The boy's father. The boy's father. Bellamy is the girl's, yeah. They're both gardeners. Yeah. We also see El Gallo, this mm-hmm. character known as El Gallo. He is both a narrator of the story and a player within the story. But he is a mysterious, wise, sexy type character that was originally played by Jerry Orbach, which is, you know, of course, why your theater was renamed after him. And for those who think they may not know who Jerry Orbach is, he was Lumiere in Beauty and the Beast, like the cartoon. Yeah. Legend. And if you're like, ah, I don't like cartoons, well, then you probably watch Law & Order. Yes. And he was on Law and Order for like as long as Fantastics ran. Yeah. <laughs> so legend, he was also the original Julian Marsh in 42nd Street. Like Amazing Jerry Amazing career. And this incredible voice, just this rich baritone that is stunning to listen to, especially on this opening number, which became the biggest hit of the show, Try to Remember. Mm-hmm. So many people have recorded this song and it's become a, a standard. Yeah. It absolutely has. It also introduces how this whole show plays like an allegory. Mm-hmm. Allegories are this really interesting way of teaching, mm-hmm. uh, especially anciently. Jesus Christ always taught in allegories. So did Plato and Socrates, etc. It means that there is a story that symbolizes a greater principle or truth than you can simply say flat out that was beautiful yes (laughs) (laughs) so for in the in the instance of the fantastics we have these characters you know this boy and the girl and their fathers who are going to play out this little fairy tale of a of a show and yet that story is a symbol of something much bigger much Mm -hmm. greater here and try to remember we have the lyrics you know about remembering september when Uh, grass was green and corn was yellow Mm -hmm. and then the end of the song says deep in december it's nice to remember although you know the snow will follow deep in december it's nice to remember without a hurt the heart is hollow deep in december it's nice to remember the fire of september that made us mellow deep in december our hearts should remember and follow they're not talking about the calendar year. It's so beautiful and poignant and a great lesson and, and the whole sort of point of it all. This little phrase we'll come back to as we talk about the show because everything that we are about to explore is in this little verse. Yeah. And here you and I are talking and it actually is December. Yes. And at the same time, it also feels like we are in an emotional December. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in terms of what this year has been for so many. So I was thinking about it, and I'm like, okay, let's do what the song says. If we're here in December, both literally and metaphorically, what can we remember about not being here, and how can we follow that? Mm -hmm. It is sort of perfect for this time, because it's so easy to get into the black hole of this time. And yeah, how do we twofold reflect on what's past or Mm pre-COVID and go, that will happen again, you know, Mm -hmm. and to keep hope that something like that will happen again. And 
what had happened before that is now put in perspective of that doesn't matter or I need to do better or what's, mm. you know, what changes can I make to make it to the other side of this? Yes. So I and think that's the follow. I feel yeah. like that's the follow. Remember the fire and then move forward, like follow, yeah. follow, follow that. that desire to someplace new. Yeah. And make it someplace new because the past can inform your future for good. Why don't we take that positivity and move it forward? Oh, that's Which, so cool. That's what I love so much about the show, despite its that's... many problems that I'm sure we will talk about. We'll, we'll talk about them. But this isn't one of them. And I love that it's still and quiet and sentimental. And in the, uh, the off-Broadway version, he just sat on a piano bench and sang the song to the audience. And uh, it's worked out brilliantly for them. Now we get to meet Louisa. Yes. Who I'm obsessed with. Like, <laughs> she's an icon. Um, I also <laughs> might be totally biased. Like, she's one of the best characters in the show, if not the best. But she also... Is. Tom was very specific about Louisa Mm. and it was evident, you know, hearing from Tom and stage management, all that, like she is the core of this show and that's who they focused on and worked on the most. But you can tell she is the anchor to it all. Here's a little bit of verse that El Gallo says about her, which it just tickles me beyond all measure. And when the girl was 15, she began to notice something strange. Her ugly duckling features had undergone a change. In short, she was growing pretty, for the first time in her whole life pretty. And the shock so stunned and thrilled her that she became almost immediately, incurably insane. <laughs> yeah. And I think they had changed when the girl was 16. She became 16 when oh, we had done the show. Yeah. And it's a great introduction to her. We do have listeners who are teenagers, and I'm not calling you all crazy. Um, (laughs) Just know that there is a level of insanity in adolescence that's totally okay. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And, you know, when I was, like, 16, I'd be like, no, I've got everything under control. Like, I got this shit on lock, and (laughs) it's a big, fat lie. Um, (laughs) It's just slowly come unraveled since then. No, but it is that, like, that's how big things are. And it's what fuels you to follow. Yeah. Right? If you don't have these big emotions, you're just going to like kind of crawl into a ball and not do anything. But like you have these big emotions, you have these desires to see the world and do something. And that's divine. Follow it. Yeah. As I'm sure this show will change even for me looking at it now versus when I was doing it versus 10 years down the line. I know it'll change with age as well. And it's kind of cool to see how it's changed even in this short amount of time that I've grown since I was 19 doing it. Um, in many ways, do you think you were Louisa? Like, Oh, yeah. And that's that's the thing I think about, you know, trying to do it now. And I just, I had that sort of innocence in a way. I think I was one of the youngest girls to do it. Although another, I hadn't thought of this in years too. Once doing this monologue that's about to follow, I am 16 years old, blah, blah, blah. And somebody in the audience goes, oh, yeah, right. And <gasps> I was like, Okay, hold on. How dare you? Excuse I did my me. face mask last night. <laughs> yes. I was like, there is still a teen at the end when I was doing this. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cute. So silly. Oh, people are sometimes the worst. I and, know. Um, and I love them dearly. Yes. <laughs> so she does. She has this great monologue followed by an even greater song about wanting much more. I mean, that's the name of the song. And A like, true I want song. You know, as far as like textbook being like, well, what is their want? What is their I want song? She just 
gets right no down guesses. to brass tacks. She's like, this is what I want. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's a beautiful song. Okay, now we meet Matt. He has been to college, though. I don't mm-hmm. assume like college as we know it. He hasn't. He didn't go to Harvard. No. But he's been away to school. Mm-hmm. And it has turned him into his father's worst nightmare, which is this like a dreamer, yeah, right? Yeah, a sort of a pseudo-intellectual that, you know, thinks he knows more than he does. He's hopelessly in love with Louisa, who's on the other side of the wall. The only yes. problem is is that their fathers have this feud. There's the wall. They're not allowed to talk to each other. Louisa, of course, feels the same way. And it almost seems like Matt, with all of his college knowledge, is going to try and woo Louisa by comparing her to a summer's day, as it were. Mm-hmm. And he's calling over the wall, which on stage is just the mute holding up like a stick, right? Yeah. And that is a lot that is a long time for that poor mute to hold the stick. It is long. The deltoids on yeah, fire. Yeah, you're like, "Oh god." <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. And Matt is waxing really poetic and yet Louisa can't hear him because of the wall. So he'll say something and she's like, "Can you speak louder?" Yeah. And he is working so hard. And she wants it to be so extreme. And, and that's part of what is built into their romance is that we can't see each other, but we can, you know, still it's love each forbidden. other. Yeah, forbidden love. That adds all the more mystery and excitement to it for both of them because he's also such a poet. I hadn't thought of this in so long, but I'm nearly 20 years old. And he talks about education and goes, I'm grown up, stable. She makes me young again is the, <laughs> is the other line. And I love... That I never thought of that until this moment. That's so ridiculous. Yeah, this 16-year-old, this 19-year-old being like, oh, God, old and She makes me feel like a young lad. (laughs) Now, what's even more hilarious is that this deep forbidden love has actually been orchestrated by the feuding fathers, Mm -hmm. who are actually best friends. Yes. The only reason that they built the wall is because they wanted desperately for their children to fall in love and get married. Mm -hmm. And nothing wraps that up quite like forbidding your children to do something. Yeah. They're like, okay, if we really want this to happen, we're going to forbid it. And then it will absolutely happen because that's how you deal with kids. And which probably both of them, I think, have read. I bet Matt and Louisa have read Romeo and Juliet till the cows come in. You know, they love that story. It is absolutely part of these characters. Mm -hmm. It's almost like they're talking this way because they love Shakespeare so much. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. And that's what also I like about Louisa is I always viewed her as someone that is well-read. She's not stupid by any means. Uh, neither of them are. And, no. And she's well-read. And this is just this beautiful fantasy world that she's created for herself. And it's not stupid. It's because she has all of this knowledge about great books and um, stories. And I think one of the lines uh, in Much More is, I want to be kissed upon the eyes, which is something in The Great Gatsby. Oh, he talks really? about, yeah, he talks about, and I don't know this for sure. I never asked Tom this, that in The Great Gatsby, Jay Gatsby is talking about Daisy. And she's the mm-hmm. kind of woman that you want to kiss upon the eyes, is a quote from the book. And I, wow. you know, always figured that that's something that Louisa has taken on and, and wants to be the woman that wants to be kissed upon the eyes or is viewed yeah, that she way. She wants to be Daisy. Yeah. So there's so many of these little, you Literary know, references. Yeah. Which I think makes these characters smart. Ooh, good point. Because if they weren't, then they would just be ridiculous. Yeah, then it's just a farce. Yeah, that's so true. So now they're getting to the point, like, they know that it's working. They know Mm -hmm. that the kids are in love. And now they need something 
to like wrap it up. Now, Luisa's dream, and this is when we get into problematic areas. Yes. Her dream is to essentially be kidnapped and rescued by her man. Yes. And to her credit, she lives in a world that is filled with literature where that is the message she's been receiving. Yeah, and wants to willingly play damsel in distress. Mm-hmm. And it comes out, yeah, in this kidnapping abduction. Yeah. Yes. So now, originally, at this moment, El Gallo, who was our narrator, mm-hmm. appears as now an actual character in the piece. And he kind of has this smarminess about him in that he's like, you want somebody to kidnap your daughter? Well, you can hire me mm-hmm. um, and we will call it a rape. Oh, yeah. And then proceeds to tell the audience, don't freak out. <laughs> yeah. When I say the word rape, I mean like in literature. Yeah. And by the time I was doing the show, that had been cut totally. Okay. So he does have kind of a point where you had all of these famous poems, like The Rape of the Sabine Women that became Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Yeah. And that's actually the only time, by the time I was doing the show, the word rape was in the show is when Louisa said it, like The Rape of the Sabine Women, and she quotes it, basically, because it's now, they changed it all to, you know, an abduction. And when you listen to the old like cast recording it's almost unbearable oh you can't listen to it i have never heard the word rape used so many times in any medium film television like news reports no (laughs) and i it's horrible and i'm sure extremely triggering for people i can only imagine absolutely (laughs) i um tend to process my own trauma through humor like that's just who i am i do the same thing (laughs) i'd like to laugh about it and laugh at myself so when i try to make light of these things i i hope that it's not triggering to other people but i am grateful that they were able to notice that this wasn't aging well no, and yeah, they changed it to abduction. Yes. The word abduction and and then they sort of just squeezed in more syllables. An abduction that's emphatic, an abduction that's polite. It sounds fine. It sounds fine. Honestly. The song is still a little cringy. Mm-hmm. Uh it just is. While we're here and talking about triggering things, I just wanted to go ahead and offer a few statistics that I think are interesting now that I have everyone's attention. Did you know that in the eyes of the law, it was not possible for a husband to rape a wife until 1979? Yeah. Crazy. It's it's mind-boggling and extremely frustrating and terrifying. And we have so much more to go as well. This one I also found kind of interesting. From 1935 to 1965, there began to be this shift where if like someone was convicted of rape, instead of put in jail, they were given psychiatric help because you wouldn't be able to do something like that unless there was a mental illness, mm-hmm. which then excused a conversation about rape. Mm-hmm. It was like all of a sudden men didn't have to worry about that because if you weren't mentally ill, then it wasn't even possible. Yeah. It's so terrifying. And we still have so much more to go. And I get very up on my soapbox about these things because no, it's so... but it's so true. And yeah. it has to begin with conversation and mm-hmm. it has to begin with understanding what the situation in all of its forms can look and feel like. You know, Fantastics has said the word so many times over the years that I felt like we we needed to pause and bring a little bit of awareness to it. Yeah, absolutely. Because in being a part of these things, you have to acknowledge that you were 
a part of um, damage that was done, even though the word was replaced and I didn't do that version of the show. Mm -hmm. It's still in the history of it. And another thing else, if, you know, while we're sort of paused in this moment is something I've become aware of is we're about to meet in the show, the old actor, Henry um, and Mortimer. And uh, Mortimer is also extremely problematic. He's uh, usually dressed in extremely stereotypical Native American garb and uh, does sort of a, a bad stereotype. And mm-hmm. that should not have happened. I didn't think twice about it when I was in the show. And that's horrible. Really? You know? It was still going on at that point? Oh, yeah. I mean, very much so. And, you know, not so much in the acting of it, but the fact that that's how this character is characterized, mm. um, particularly because it's players. So now, I think if the show's done now, I mean, Mortimer can be anything. It could be a showgirl I mean, for all we care. Anything I mean, other than this. that is kind of the point, too, right? Is that he has a Cockney accent, but then he's dressed as a Native American. So it's yeah. like, he doesn't have to be anything. No, and, and that's the beauty of the show and why when the show, you know, is up further, I think that needs to be changed because so much in Western culture has stolen and made a stereotype out of Native American culture. So I looked up because being in the show, you know, directly... It influenced uh, viewers, particularly in New York, where people are coming in from out of town. Maybe this is their first introduction to theater. And in Mm -hmm. front of them is a very stereotypical, bad representation of a culture that is extremely sacred and important to people and is used as a punchline. And that's not correct. And even little things that I'm learning, I know, um, particularly in the theater world, you know, if you're getting notes from a director or something like that, I've had several people, you know, not necessarily just in the show, but, you know, be like, uh, let's powwow in the corner. And that oh, that's not... Oh my gosh, you're so right. Yeah, and that, that verbiage that we don't think of, especially as a, you know, very white and blonde woman, I, I never thought of, but that that's a sacred thing. And like, just come meet me in the corner. There's so many other options. And I just feel like that particular wow. word is used a lot in theater and that we can do better at that, me included. And so I looked up, there's so many resources for so many, um, you know, places that you can support Native and Indigenous people. And one of them I found was the Red Hawk Native American Arts Council works in the arts, particularly since that's what we're talking about, um, for, you know, creating more opportunities as well as, you know, working with these sort of bad stereotypes and correcting that and helping to remedy that. And so I have a little Instagram slide we can pop up on maybe the Instagram as well for Absolutely. Other resources for people to inform themselves about. And it's just something that as we take this pause in theater and this show, The Fantastics, just from an economical standpoint, is -hmm. a great show to put up. Coming up, it could be streamed easily. It's a small cast. But if that's the case, then different things need to happen. And accountability is not an attack is my favorite new phrase, you know, as as I'm learning and fucking up and, uh, (laughs) excuse me, you know, and (laughs) and learning things that I've done and shows and everything and this show in particular. Why not? It's probably a great option to do post-COVID as it's cheap. You're exactly right. You could do so many different things because it's so small and it's usually just done with a piano and a harp which Mm -hmm. is beautiful. I loved having the harp. Oh, my God. The score, I mean, that's something we haven't even talked about. The score sounds so lush and full, and it's just on piano. Yeah, it's just just a piano and a harp, and it's beautiful. But, yes, I I just think thank you for doing that pause because I think that's important. And, you know, there's resources to share and uh, 
to align ourselves with. Yeah. That's awesome. Yay. Yes. Okay, so it all goes down, right? And it goes down perfectly. Yeah, and that's also where we meet the old actor, Henry and Mortimer, who are these old, like, vaudeville (laughs) crazy guys. (laughs) Um, Mortimer is known for his death scenes, so he's always doing death scenes. And Henry is known for his Shakespeare. But he can't hear. No, and he gets it wrong, you know, mixes them up, and which is, that's funny, and that's just old vaudeville that's come to add. What a fun way to really show the ridiculousness of this fantasy, because, like, the old guy who can't hear is is the one who's kidnapping, you know, and so then when Matt becomes the hero and saves the day, it's like, well, duh. (laughs) Yeah, of course, but to Louisa, oh, goodness, she's been rescued. And exactly. uh, the prince has come on his white horse, basically, you know, that kind of thing. And so the first act ends with this happy ending, right? Mm-hmm. The the fathers celebrate because the lovers have found each other. And so now they can have their friendship out in the open. In in many ways, there's even a happy ending for Mortimer and, and Henry because they were unemployed actors and then they got to do something. Yeah, well, and because they in the off-Broadway production, they quite literally come out of a trunk. That was in the stage directions? And did yeah. it actually happen? Oh, yeah. So we, um, and also right before this whole abduction, the perfect moment is when Matt and Louisa sneak out of their house to meet and do Soon It's Gonna Rain, which is also... <gasps> oh, my gosh. I completely I forgot about Soon it. I'm so sorry. No, Please forgive me. And which is another one that I think has transcended as far as musically. Streisand recorded it. So it's, soon... Let, let's talk about that beautiful. song. So yeah. it's that Matt and Louisa sneak out and sing it together. Yeah. And it's both, once again, in the terms of this allegory, they're talking about the rain like actually coming yeah and like what are we going to do and how can we keep each other safe and yet there's something else mm-hmm. there as well that's like a little sexual a little yeah. in, in, in terms of like just growing up and intimacy and, and being and, alone you know with somebody that yeah. you really like for the first time and not knowing physically what to do or what to say you know it, it's the only time in the show that matt and louisa kiss too oh, and wow. it's very simple and sweet. And that song sounds like Sondheim. If you played that song for somebody who didn't know it, yeah, I feel like they'd be like, oh, well, that's um from one of his early pieces, uh, Evening Primrose. You know, yeah. I, I don't know. It like, is. That's so, in, it's very Evening Primrose to me. I never thought of that. Yeah. And yet that's before Sondheim. Yeah. And it's, it's, it is one of my favorite songs Gorgeous. in it. And it's a beautiful moment in the show. So that is right before all of the craziness. Yeah. Which is actually really smart that they have a moment to connect before that. So yeah. then they have something to come back to. It's structured well, you know, in yeah, that, that you get these like big, crazy, you know, funny moments and then these sweet moments. It, it just does that structure very well. That's great. Since the first act ended with basically where the end of Cinderella you know what I yeah. mean? <laughs> yeah, the end of the fairy tale, basically. Then we go to intermission, and I think there's kind of this fun into the woods type thing of, all right, well, what's going to happen next, yeah, right? What possibly... We got everything we wanted. Yeah. What's really interesting about the way the show is structured is the first act is titled In the Moonlight. Is that right? Yes. So everything is happening with the soft glow of the moon. Yeah. And then at the top of the second act, and I'm going to read some verse again from Mr. Gallo himself. Yes. That's something else. Like, El Gallo means the cock in mm-hmm. Spanish. Did you usually have Latino or Latinx 
no, people play El that, Gallo? That was, that's you know, something else I would That's another recommend. thing that needs to be addressed, particularly because, I mean, in the history of the actual off-Broadway production, we had very, very few, if any, actors and actresses of color. I mean, at all. Oh, wow. Interesting. It was not good. And I know the few that we had, I did not have a great experience there. And that's also something oh. to be acknowledged, you know. Wow. Interesting. Um, because it was so old-fashioned. I know even as the only woman, that was sometimes extremely difficult in the show. Wow, I didn't even think about that. Thank you for saying that. Yeah, and that was that was hard. There was a lot of boys clubby things that happened. And um, I'm grateful for the show, to the show for that, because I find myself speaking up more and more for myself, in particularly mm-hmm. in theater situations where you're not heard as much as a woman. The show itself doesn't have to be that way. It's no, there's the no culture. indication of anything, you know. Yeah. Yeah, so why? Wow. <laughs> it can be anything. Um, I would love to see a production of The Fantastics directed by a woman. I think that that would be, especially since there's only one female in it. I Boy, would that love could... that. And that's actually why when I left, I left the show right before it closed. Officially. Oh, wow. I didn't know that it was closing. I'm still mad about that... it. I was like, just tell me. I would have stayed the extra month and finished right. it out. Um but I, I put in my notice because I had done a concert. I think the concert actually that I was in New York for to audition when I auditioned for the Fantastics initially. And uh, a wonderful performer named uh, Lisa Livesey. Livesey? Is that? Oh, yeah. yeah. She was there at the concert and she was talking to somebody. I overheard her talking to somebody about doing Wicked. And she was a Glinda. And, and she was saying, like, they asked her, how can you leave a, a show like that and a role like that? And she goes, well, one night I just came out on stage and I you know, was in the bubble and started to do all these things. And I just knew it was time for somebody else to love her, to love Glinda like she loved her. And that always Aww. stuck in my brain. And wow. it's true. One, one night I came out with during the overture and did these little, you know, did the little choreography and the bows and all of this. And I was sitting there during Try to Remember. And I was like, it's time for somebody else to love her. I've had my time with her. It's time for somebody else to love her. And somebody else did. And uh, a lot of people got to play her and love her in their own way. It's such a generous way to look at it. I love that. Yeah. Okay. So at the top of act two, yes. El Gallo says, and he's talking about the moon because like the whole first act was about moonlight, right? Mm-hmm. Their moon was cardboard, fragile. It was very apt to fray. And what was last night scenic may seem cynic by today. The play's not done. Oh, no, not quite. For life never ends in the moonlit night. And despite what pretty poets say, the night is only half the day. As if saying, yeah, everything's pretty in moonlight. Wait until the sun comes out. Yeah. And the sun does come out. And act two is all about full daylight let's see what's really going on here, mm-hmm. which is what elevates the Fantastics to both a, an even weirder place than it's been before and a much cooler place than a lot of our fairy tales Yeah, you get to see after the happily ever after. And so right here at the top, everybody's getting on each other's nerves. <laughs> it's called This Plum is Too Ripe. Yeah. Everything from the way the other person eats to the way the other person is, you know, minding their plants. Everything is just ticking everybody off. And boy, is that a reality in quarantine. (laughs) Oh, my God, yes. That is so relatable in life. And yet during all of this, when you have been together all for too long, and then you're suddenly like, I've never heard this person chew so much. And now I'm hearing it every time they chew. You know, like it's those things like they do in this, like taking that bite of the of the plum. And they're like, oh, my God, that's what a horrible sound you're making. <laughs> you know? like, How dare you? Yeah. 
It's true. It's very uh, quarantine-esque. For sure. For sure. All of this fighting leads to the fathers revealing that the whole abduction thing that led everybody to their happiness was totally made up. Yeah. Matt and Louisa as a couple start to annoy, you know, and make fun of their parents. And it just... Mm -hmm. And the parents are like, oh... You're not grateful for us? Well, guess what? If it weren't for us, you wouldn't even be together. And here's why. And it triggers everybody. Yeah. Matt is, I I think, feels like his masculinity is threatened because he was supposed to have been this hero that defeated the the villain. Yeah. And then it turns out the villain was just some for-hire actor. Yeah. And... So that changes also, I think, the way that Louisa sees him. Yeah. And so now they have this moment where they decide, well, you know what? I'm going to go have adventures. Yeah. We don't have to be, you know, accountable to each other. We don't have to. If this was all false, then I'm going to find something real. You know, I'm going to find a real man, basically. Um, mm-hmm. And the the world's come crumbling down and they go, well, let's we're going to find the real thing. Then this was all fake. And that's, I think, absolutely heartbreaking for both of them and one of the shows I don't know what happened during that there's something where the both fathers go Matt Louisa and we like run and we have to hit a certain point and then El Gallo breaks in and sort of narrates and uh-huh. during one show it was Matt Emily and I went what <laughs> and who's I, Emily there was no are we doing our town there was no Emily in the sh- there wasn't a girl who was named Emily before me. Like, <laughs> nobody knows where this came from. And it was so weird and hysterical. And at the worst possible moment to a very, like, sensitive, dramatic moment. How do you freeze while you're, like... Yeah, and I could see the mat out of the corner of my eye. And we sort of, like, looked at each other. And all you could see were just shoulders. <laughs> because we could not... We were like, we have to keep this together right now. It was so bizarre. And I will oh. never forget it. And we'll never let anybody live that down. Because we're like, where? I don't know. That's absolutely fantastic. This is also where the allegory really starts, I think, becoming more apparent, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Pun intended. (laughs) Because you see how their lives have become a symbol for parenting and just growing up in general. Mm -hmm. So often, I think, as parents, and heaven knows I'm not one, but I'm surrounded by children and and lots of siblings who are. Uh And... You so want your child to be happy, and in many ways, you feel like you need to keep them from pain in order for that to happen. Mm -hmm. So in this story, you have two fathers who have orchestrated this complete fabrication in order to control the outcome of their children's happiness, Yeah, completely forgetting that happiness like Try to Remember says, involves a lot of Decembers, mm-hmm. involves pain and mistakes. Yeah. You know? Beautifully said. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> and so you see that it didn't work. You know, mm-hmm. all of this fight for control just totally backfired. And what needs to happen now is for them to go on the journey and honestly get injured. Yeah. Physically and emotionally for the boy and the girl. For Matt yeah. and Louisa, Yeah. When that bubble bursts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I, in many ways, I don't think a lot has changed. Maybe COVID will have taught our youth a much tougher lesson than we ever learned in our young years. Mm-hmm. But there is a protective bubble that pops and, and we think that that is growing up. Hmm. But I don't think the bubble exists by itself. No, I think you're right. I think the bubble in some way is 
control, whether that's you or from an outside source, mm-hmm. you know, trying to make sure that the world doesn't hurt you or that you don't feel pain because those people have felt pain and know how horrible it is. Yeah. And, but that's a part of life. Like you said, you have to experience the Decembers in order to reflect on or appreciate the Septembers and then get to the next one. Matt decides to go off and have adventures, and mm-hmm. he meets up with Henry and Mortimer again. But they're like playing different people, right? Yes. They're just sort of players helping the story along. Gotcha. Okay. And these two characters that they are now, they're kind of like, hi, diddly dee, an actor's life for me from Pinocchio, like the fox <laughs> and, the, and the cat. Yes. The world's a stage. Come with me. Yeah. And so they take Matt and then Louisa meets up with El Gallo again. Yeah. Who has gotten over his back problems from the abduction (laughs) 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 and is now ready to essentially seduce her into this world of adventure and danger mm-hmm. and and then I what mean, a real abduction you know what what that really would be versus this falsified oof. version you know and so louise is kind of going in this like bad boy direction for a yeah. second and also when matt leaves him and Elgayo sing i can see it which is another oh, classic that's another great song so good. oh my gosh i keep forgetting about they're all of these so songs good. i mean they're all freaking awesome it's so rarely great... you get a great guy duet and it's great and this it's, is, that, fun, it's a fantastic and it one. moves like the rhythm of the song. It moves, it drives really well. And that's exciting. And that sort of is like, I'm going to go out and actually be the man I think I want to be. Do you think that El Gallo orchestrated that so he could have Luisa? Like, does he have a desire at this point to take over? Or is it a little bit more meta than that? You know, I don't know. I think that's a great thing that's up to the El the Gallo. Or the, yeah, because totally. it could be, I want to seduce her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which like she's supposed to be 16 which is you know uh, um, and I, but I think it's more so from the narrator standpoint of like yeah. in order for her to learn her lesson he has to not this be here and happen. vice versa I love that that's you know? much better and I think yeah. uh, particularly because in that sort of bubble bursting moment there's a freeze and um El Gallo comes over to Luisa and takes a tear this is a new this was a newer thing that was added I believe oh, cool. um halfway I want to say through the Jerry Orbach version and he takes the tear off of her and looks at it and says you know this tear is enough this tiny tear the boy will go the girl will stay thus runs the world away her heart's broken he's pissed now I need to talking about Matt now he needs to go off to the world and see Mm -hmm. what the world really is and I'm going to entice him to do so for both of their lesson learning. El Gallo takes Luisa to like all of these dances yeah. Yeah, or these like fanciful places. And it's this crazy song called Round and Round. The whole song is done with a mask, quite literally, yes. which is a great to me very obvious symbol of rose-colored glasses. Mm-hmm. Oh my god, look at how beautiful this is and then when they're off, oh there's something much more sinister happening or this is not at all what I thought it was going to be. Every place that they go, she ends up seeing Matt also there who is being tortured in some horrible way. Yeah, this is the weirdest part of the show. It's so and this weird. is, I think, part of the reason why people don't like this show, because they're like, what <laughs> is happening here? Right. Did you ever see the movie Mother? Exclamation point. No. With Jennifer Lawrence? No. Oh, no, but I know what you're talking about. So weird and really upsetting. 
And I've heard so many people who were like viscerally angry for having watched that film. (laughs) And like every single time I'm yelling, it was an allegory. Like you have to look beyond it. And that's that is this moment here where you're seeing this guy who in the first act saying, you know, the beautiful rain song. Yeah. And now he's like being tortured and burned alive. Yeah. And Louisa sees it and is like, oh my gosh, is he okay? It looks like he's on fire. And El Gallo's like, use the mask, use the mask. Mm-hmm. And, and then, oh, isn't it beautiful? All the colors, you know, it's sort of that the choosing so what, beautiful. what to see and, and how we go. It's that blissful ignorance. And yet it's not in youth. It's not in the no. ignorance of youth. It's out there in the world with adults. Yeah. So yeah. to me, that is telling me once you grow up, you don't have youth to blame for it anymore. You are actively choosing to grab a mask and put it on it's and look through it and be like, nope, everything's fine. Mm-hmm. That guy's burning over there. There's racism over here and mm-hmm. it's totally fine. And it's a coping mechanism because you don't want to. Yeah, it, it's a choice. This show is so much about the avoidance of pain. I'm realizing yeah. right now. It's so hard to look pain in the face and I'm such a Brene Brown fan. That's like oh, straight yes. from her from her. I love it. Yes, <laughs> I love her. her world. But we do anything to avoid looking pain in the face. And I think it's been happening all over the place mm-hmm. this year. Politics aside, yeah. just from a human place, we don't like to see that much suffering. And so we have really interesting ways of coping with it. But mm-hmm. one of them is by taking a mask and choosing to turn it into something else. Yeah. And I think it's a great lesson, you know. You're never directly looking at it, and Louisa is never directly seeing, like, oh, that's Matt in pain. Mm-hmm. Or it's somebody else who got infected with it's not COVID. Me. It's not my family. It didn't happen to me, or it can't happen to me. You know, that's yeah. another, that's a story. That's a this. That's not. And I think in some ways that's a coping mechanism for us because if, it you know. It absolutely is. And so otherwise it hurts. Yeah. And, and then we don't want to be in pain. Mm-hmm. Now, Throughout the show, Luis has been wearing a necklace. Yes, that's something that's introduced at the very beginning. Um, it's her mother's necklace that she cherishes because her mother has uh, passed away. It's hinted at. It's like her prized possession. Yeah, and that's she wears it all through the show. And at the very end of all of this, El Gallo convinces her to give it to him. Yeah, so they go on this whole adventure, and she sort of falls in love with El Gallo for that. Not necessarily him as a person, I think, because that sort of love story is difficult. And that she asks him to kiss her, which I know as like an audience member is always like, oh, my God. Like, yeah. you know, she, oh, no, no, please don't. Oh, um, please don't kiss her. You're like, oh, God. And he kisses her on the eyes. And to me, which that, is what she's always wanted. Yeah. And to me, that's the seal of she's done for. She's going to give him that necklace. And then he goes, go pack. We're going to continue our adventures together. But I don't know if you'll come back. I don't trust you. It's that weird cat and mouse sort of manipulative thing. And uh, she gives him the necklace. He takes the necklace. And he's doing it as El Gallo in, in the show, but doing it as the narrator going, this is the final lesson she needs to learn. She comes back. Uh, well, first you see Matt come back. And he's disheveled from his horrible Beaten adventures. both physically and emotionally. And she comes back, you know, yelling El Gallo and... Uh, she sees that he's gone, and then it's that sinking in of that's been taken. And uh, yeah, it's so it's devastating, so heartbreaking. El Gallo says there is a curious paradox that no one can explain. Who understands the secret of the reaping of the grain? 
Who understands why spring is born out of winter's laboring pain, or why we all must die a bit before we grow again? <laughs> I know. It's so beautiful. And what follows that, too, is I do not know the answer. I merely know it's true. I hurt them for that reason and myself a little bit, too. He's playing the narrator and going, I hate that you have to learn this lesson. I learned this lesson, and yet it still hurts me. Oof. You know, and it's ugh, it's so good. That curious paradox, because that's what the whole show is. And the allegory, new words yes. I'm learning. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, so Matt and Louisa meet up, and they're yeah. both beaten up. Yeah. In their own ways. You know, they set off to have these adventures, and by gosh, they had them. Mm-hmm. They see each other, and I think they appreciate each other anew. Yeah. But just as they were meeting as equals before, they're meeting as equals now. Yeah, and I think it's also the first time they're seeing each other as people versus the idea of what the other person is to them. Oh, hallelujah. Boy, (laughs) is that a real thing. You know, and I think that's what's important and why They Were You is my favorite moment in the show and my favorite song. Can we talk about this song? Oh, It doesn't get the love it deserves. Because soon it's going to rain takes all the love, which, again, well, well deserved. But Beautiful. They Were You is is so stunning. And it's really, I think, like that kind of Claritin commercial where it's like the fog has lifted. And you're like, oh, I can see again. And, uh, yes. and they really see each other for people and who that person is, flaws and all. And that that all is beautiful. It's romantic. It's it like is. romantic in its truest sense. Yeah. yeah. Because, you know, when he sang metaphor at the beginning, when he was coming up with all the words, that mm-hmm. he has that gorgeous melody of love, you are love. Yeah. And so then to revisit it here mm-hmm. um, with an, a whole new perspective, you're like, okay, now it's romantic. Yeah. And not this idea of what they thought romantic was. And do you know what it is? Fantastic. It is fantastic. (laughs) They are the fantastics. Yeah. And I love the choice that it begins to snow at the end. So this is the last thing I'm going to read. Yay. And and it's what I read in the first, but now that we've talked through it, maybe it will ring true in a different way. Deep in December, it's nice to remember, although you know the snow will follow. Deep in December, it's nice to remember, without a hurt, the heart is hollow. Deep in December, it's nice to remember the fire of September that made us mellow. Deep in December, our hearts should remember and follow. Yay! Yay. And that's the Fantastics, everybody. That's the Fantastics. It's a pretty profound little piece of theater that has, I think, stood the test of time with help. Mm Mm-hmm. And um, and it's okay to need help, too, you and know? And it's okay to need help. <laughs> absolutely. It can be an embodiment of what it's actually saying. Yeah, absolutely. Which is own your mistakes and follow. As always, if you have shows you'd like us to cover on A Musical Theater Podcast, you can always email me at amusicalpodcast at gmail.com. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. And follow us on social media at A Musical Podcast on Twitter and Instagram for lots of more great content. Lots of more. Good job, Parsons. That was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Maddie, how do we follow you and everything you're up to? Oh, um, I use Instagram. I have a website, which is madisonclareparks.com. And that's more the professional which end of things. gorgeous. I was oh, on it the you. other day. Oh, thank you very much. So that's my website. And then Instagram is at Maddie Parks. M-A-D-D-Y-P-A-R-K-S. 
And that's where I do, you know, musical theatery things, but also normal life things and scroll endlessly to no abandon. So <laughs> those are the Fantastic. sort of social medias, website and Instagram. Thank you for having me. This was so oh uh, truly gosh. so fun and, and poignant and, and beautiful and touching and silly all of the above and what better show to do it with than the fantastics yeah so thank you for being a fantastic guest oh my gosh thank and, you and everybody out there enjoy your december Have you ever wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists, what they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There's enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.